Welcome to NRP's Leadership Conference podcast. Every February, pastors and leaders from around the country gather together at our Leadership Conference for dynamic teaching, powerful worship, impartation, ministry, and covenant relationships. Here's one of the recordings from our 2023 Leadership Conference. I want you to go to, with me to uh, the book of uh, 1 Corinthians, uh, the ninth chapter. You know, I usually preach out of the New American Standard. Sometimes I use some other references, but I'm going to just stick with NASB tonight. And uh, uh, not that it's any, you know, great difference from the New King James or NIV most times, but that's just what I'm comfortable with and I like to use. Uh, so, and I want to talk to you tonight about running to win. Running to win. Uh, so let's, let's read this text and then I'll, I'll go here and see how the Lord uh, takes us. I do all things for the sake of the gospel so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run? Now when you see that phrase that you see several times in Paul's writings, do you not know, do you know what that means? That means you don't know. That's what it means. That's a nice way of saying stupid. Listen to me. Okay? Do you not know? Let me share something with you. That all those who run in a race all run, but only one receives a prize. Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things, but they do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Therefore, therefore, that's conclusion, right? So we're going to bear down, at the end of this, we're going to bear down on the therefore. Okay? Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air. I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. So we've got two vivid pieces of illustration here. Two pictures. We've got a boxer and we've got a runner. And there's something the Apostle Paul is communicating to people about understanding that because it translates into the Christian leader's life. And we need to get that translation and understand it. Now this is a very particular illustration. It's very vivid to the people that he's writing to. He's writing to the Corinthian church. He's not writing to the Roman church. He's not writing to the church at Ephesus. In this illustration, there is no doubt in their mind what he's talking about. They understand the context of what he's talking about. And you know, when we read, you know, scriptures sometimes, we don't maybe absorb or understand the historical or even the geographical context of an illustration that is being given to us. So I want to spend some time by the end of our time together tonight talking about that, okay? So when he says to the Corinthians about a boxer and a runner, everybody knows what he's talking about. See, I live in Pittsburgh, okay? And uh, if you say the Pittsburgh Steelers in Pittsburgh, everybody knows what you're talking about, even people who don't follow sports, even people that don't care about football. They know who the Pittsburgh Steelers are. When I travel, I go overseas to other countries. People say, oh, what about the Steelers? Okay? So they, there's, a, there's an understanding of what that is to them. To somebody outside of that, they, they might not know a clue, but you don't even have to be a sports fan, okay? Do you know that, oh, that's where, you know, that's where the Pittsburgh Steelers are from. That's the type of illustration he's given. It's very germane to the people in Corinth because that's where the Athenian games took place. That was the hub of the Athenian games. And boxing and running were part of their culture. Uh, there's a famous picture, I think we have it up here, or a famous statue. Okay, it's actually been to the Metropolitan uh, Art Museum in New York and uh, in, in different places in the world. 
It was discovered in a dig, I think, about in the mid-1800s, but it actually predates Christ. And it's called, they, they named it the Boxer at Rest. Do we have a picture of that? There it is. You may have seen this somewhere. And this, and this piece of bronze is, is considered uh, one of the most graphic facial displays in bronze that you see the agony, you see the pain, the, the details of this. And, I've, and, I, and I, I searched out some pictures, and it really, I'm, I mean, I'm not an art person, okay? Uh, you probably knew that, but I'm just sharing that with you. But, but this thing, as I study it, really did the, the detail in it, the age of it, the authenticity of it. And, and this was, these were created by these Corinthian people because boxing and running were part of their vocabulary. They understood this, okay? And, and they grasped this. As a matter of fact, the Colosseum, the ruins of the Colosseum are still intact today, okay? And it's a, it's a big, it's a big uh, tourist attraction. The, they, they nicknamed uh, that stadium, I think you say it, uh, Colomemuro, and what it means is marble. The whole Colosseum, it's the only Colosseum ever built like this in the world, is completely marble. That's why there's still ruins of it that are there today. I think we might there. Oh, there's a picture. Thank you, Angela. Uh, that, that is there today. You can go and see it. This was the center of their social activity. Okay? Their culture revolved around this. And so when Paul is communicating what it looks like to be a man or woman of God that is pursuing the purpose of God, the deposit of grace of God in their life, he gives them an illustration that they know exactly what he's talking about. A boxer and a runner. Just like when Jesus was preaching to those farmers and he talked about a sower goes out to sow. They knew what he was talking about. Are you with me? Amen. So we're going to explore this a little bit. You know, there is a real power uh, when we take our time and put things in biblical context. One of my kind of like frustrations is sometimes when I'm hearing people preach or teach and they'll take a verse and uh, they'll, I wouldn't say take it out of context, but they lift it Maybe they don't put it in its context would be a nicer way to say it. In other words, what they're preaching is not air, but it's, it's flailing at the wind. It's not a body punch because it's not in context. And I hear believers all the time quote verses. And sometimes I'll ask them, what's the verse before that? What's the verse after it? What did he mean by that? And so what's happened is we developed a drive-through version of theology. Okay, we got a verse here and we got a verse there and, and it becomes the Christian self-improvement rather than the Great Commission. Okay, and, and so I want to just slow things down here tonight and, and kind of work with me on this. Here's what I've learned. Well, I've learned actually more than one thing. I know it's hard to believe, but I have. It really amazes my wife when I learn something. But anyway, because she's been trying to teach me a couple things for a long time. She's waving at me. So many, of, so many of us have been maybe convinced that the purpose of our church services, listen to me, are to inspire people. I mean, that's better than discouraging people. I've been to some church services that totally discourage me. You probably have too. And I'm not saying they shouldn't be inspirational. But listen, here's what I've learned. Inspiration will move people. But if you'll be honest with yourself, you've seen some of the same people move the same way for 10 years and they never change. But listen, listen, don't doubt, they really are moved. Some of those people you see at the altar repeatedly, repeatedly, they are being moved. Don't doubt that. The Holy Spirit is working. It's not a Holy Spirit problem. It's a context problem. 
So inspiration will move them, but understanding will build them. And so we have a lot of people that go to church every Sunday to get their fix. To get their spiritual caffeine. So they can make it another week and come back and hope that you can cheer them on again. And I'm not totally discounting that. I'm just saying that's a slice of the pie. That's not the whole thing. And when we body punch with the Scriptures, rather than just filling them out there and giving them a context to live their life and understand what is going on, we begin to help them digest things so they can feed themselves. What a great thought, huh? Rather than just be inspired. We, we, we need them both. Please, we need them both. When, uh, when I started pastoring... I was just a month shy of my 22nd birthday. That was bad enough, but I'd only been saved four years. I'm not, I don't recommend that. But our thing was then, go get them, boy. So I did, right? And uh, uh, I realized, you know, we had a, that first Sunday, we had, we had 14 people. And in about three months, I grew it to 10. I was ready to write my first church growth book. But the amazing part thing is that God blessed it. But I was smart enough after the first year, we were up to about 80 people. After the first year, I, got, I said, I can't, I, I'm, I told you everything I've known and I made up a couple of things. I am out of gas. I don't, this, so we, I said, I don't even know where I got this wisdom because I really didn't have any apostolic understanding at that point. I said, we need to find an older guy that knows what he's doing. And we did, thank the Lord. And you know what we did? We went back to our home church and served. And, and then, uh, you know, then we came on staff there. And then we went out and planted on the church and started the whole thing over. And then by then I knew a little bit more. Okay? But here's what I did. I remember that first Sunday. Amen. In the first, man, I, I, I had two messages. I had a message on faith and I had a message on worship. And I, I, I gave them both. One one week and one the next. Then I had no idea what I was going to do. Besides that... You know, the, the mode then was you had Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday nights, and I was going to preach three times a week. And I had two messages. <laughs> so I figured after about four weeks, they'd get tired of hearing those two messages. So here's what I did. And, and listen, this was God. I'm convinced. As, you know, you look back over your life sometimes, and there's little things that happen. You, you know, I've been telling people lately, you know, I wrote this book, you know, the one about the God who intervenes, and then I read the book, honestly, after I wrote it. And there were things I saw in there that I had never connected the dots for, even in the writing of the book. It was illuminating to me, and I saw some patterns. I was like, this is great. I wrote this book for me. You know, and you, you can have some, all right? So I went to the Christian bookstore, and I thought, you know, you didn't have YouTube then, you know? There was no, like, internet, all right? I know it's hard for you, some people to imagine, but that's true. And I didn't have any, I didn't have any, you know, I came out of a very evangelistic church, but the concept of fatherhood and, you know, that kind of stuff, that was, just, it was go get them, boy, you know? And I appreciate it. I, was, I would have rather had that than just sit here and shut up, boy. So I give my pastor some credit, all right? So I went to the Christian bookstore, and I went in there and I found the biggest book on sermons I could find. And on the, it said G. Campbell Morgan. So I got this big fat book by G. Campbell Morgan. And I started reading it. He was a great English preacher. And it is said that in his ministry, he preached a sermon on every single verse in the New Testament, including all the genealogies. But this guy could open the Word. He would take that verse... And he would show you what the original intent was. So that's one of the laws of hermeneutics. What did it mean then? Don't change the meaning. Maybe you can apply something to it. Maybe you can't. But what was the original intent? And as I begin to read that, I learned how to preach out of a context. And here's what Morgan said. That before he preached any message, he would read the chapter before it and the chapter after it at least 50 times. 
every time. Now, I can't tell you I've done that, but it is my practice that I never get up and preach. i never, that's probably not true. Right. Most times. <laughs> most meaning more than 50%. No, no, pre, no. Maybe 80. How about 70? I don't know. I'm just winging it now. A lot of times, okay, give me a break. Some of you are just like staring me down, like, okay, I, sorry. Most of the time, I do that same thing. I learned to do that from him. And it's really given me confidence to preach with authority and boldness. Here's why. When I get up to preach, I don't have to think, what am I going to say? What cute phrase? What lingo am I going to come up with? What Christian cliches can I link together to get people to say amen to? To nonsensical things. good preaching <laughs> because all I got to worry about well what did God say and there were times listen here's a revelation you don't have to be even inspired to preach the Word of God I think it helps if you got some inspiration but the Word of God is powerful there have been times when I've got up to preach that the only thing I was clinging to was the authority of the Word of God and I'll tell you, Penny will tell you, those are some of my best messages I ever preached. I was just so dependent on the truth. I felt like I had nothing in me. I was broken and empty, but the Word of God stands forever. Hallelujah. Now, I'm not saying that should be your lifestyle and your pattern, but I've had my moments, okay? But if you'll just commit yourself to really understand some of those favorite verses... <laughs> and what they really mean, it will really, really go a long way and build your confidence in preaching uh, the, the, the Scripture with just, you know, with just great authority. So we're going to look in to the boxer and the runner. What in the world was he talking about? But I want to do one big bunny trail first, all right? Actually, really not a bunny trail, because hopefully it won't be a bunny trail. I'll link it together. So... For many years, uh, you know, even as a younger man, I always had this heartache when I saw a church close. When I would drive by empty buildings, as, you know, and I, I, I look at Europe right now. You know, it's part of my, my like, spiritual fascination with Ukraine right now, because I really believe they are the door to Europe, because they're the most church country in Europe. They... They, they, they have more vitality than any other country there. And they're exporting people right now. Maybe not for the right reason, but they're, le you know. You know, I always say this. Every church plants churches. Some just do it on purpose. Right? So they are, some of their best young people have been exported to Italy and Spain and the Netherlands. And they're planting churches because that's what they do. So that's part of the the thing that is stirring in me. Uh, and then as I begin to come into my, you know, apostolic mantle, the whole issue of generational understanding and the critical nature of transitioning churches to the next generation is something that both concerned me and fascinated me. So I, I've studied it, and, and I've got to be involved in, man, for my age, a, a lot of transition of work with people. Of course, I've gone through as a pastor, a planting pastor, transitioning, planting pastor. Tra so I, I got my own experiences, you know. And so Brother Rod mentioned, you know, the other night, he said it was three years ago that you guys laid hands on me and set me in. That night, and I shared this with everybody, some of you probably won't remember, but I share with everybody after laid hands on him, I felt like the Lord said to me that he was increasing that mantle. That one of my number one mandates was to help churches transition to the next generation. And it wasn't just my mantle, it was our mantle. That we together as a tribe and a team, that we could do that. Because it's not one size fits all. I, I've, there's, there's just, I mean, there's a science to church transition and there's an art to church transition. And the, the, the ingredient 
the, the lubrication of all that is godly relationships to make that happen. And as I was just thinking about this, you know, I just realized just in the last several years, we have seven healthy transitions that have happened in NRP. Just in the last several years. Listen to this. I, I mean, when I started writing it down, I was amazed. Chad Cochran, Gene Amison, Chris Rodriguez, Doug Allen, Keith Poblanski, Pat McGuffin, and Matt Burgett are in this room tonight, all transitioned, hallelujah. All of them in totally different circumstances. Some similar, some not so similar. So it can be done. And I believe with all my heart, them being connected to an apostolic tribe was the thing that really helped them. Maybe that would have happened without it, but I don't know. But I'm glad they didn't have to find out. How about you? And we were able to work through that. And I believe one of my, one of my heart's desires, I believe I've heard from the Lord on this, is I, I believe that God wants to use us, our legacy going forward, is that within the charismatic Pentecostal movement, that NRP will serve churches way beyond this that will come to us seeking that. And I believe the reason we're able to do that is because we've got a Father's anointing on this operation. Amen? That there is something in us that is generally generational in, in, in the full definition of what that looks like and how it works. And... Uh, these were not in my notes, but I, but I thought I would uh, just throw this in there a little bit. So I guess they are in my notes now, huh? And I felt like the Lord spoke this to me. Because I think, again, we use terminology and we don't know what we're talking about. Or we never define it. I'm a big definer. Like when you say generational, I say, what does that mean to you? And when people say to me, well, you know, Brother Keith, the anointing. I say, I don't know. Explain it to me. So we use terminology that we all define differently. And by the way, that's one reason why you'll, if you don't do that, you'll always have problems in your leadership team. Because people will sit there and say amen, but they got a different definition than you do of submission to authority or covenant or under whatever it may be. Okay, they're defining it. So you have to define it from the scripture. All right, so it's important to define things. But I just feel like the Lord dropped this in my spirit. For many people that are talking about generational succession, they're talking about a hand-me-down, not a hand-me-off. Like when I'm done with it, when it's used up, when I can't do it anymore, then I'll give it to you. I'm, I'm not talking about anybody in this room, other people. Now, again, I don't think that's objective. I don't think that that's like we're doing this on purpose. But just the fact that, oh yeah, we want somebody to succeed us is different than I'm going to help somebody to succeed me. And what it really means to help somebody to succeed me, it means I'm going to help somebody to surpass me. Because what father does not want his daughters and his sons to surpass him in every area? Amen? Like I look at my kids, you know, that are walking with the Lord and I'm thinking, this is great. They're surpassing me in so many different ways. It's, it's wonderful. And I rejoice with that and I want to empower that and, and I want to help that. I was on, my, on the phone this afternoon with my, my, my oldest son who's involved in, in, a, in a pretty interesting business situation and he was just bouncing a couple things off me and I thought, this is incredible that this is happening in his life at this age. Are you with me? I'm rejoicing. That's, that's a generational understanding. Amen? And, and that should be magnified in the church. It shouldn't be a threat to us. Uh, I'll just tell you a little story here. So, this is not a secret. The church already knows. But Tony Crombie is going to be stepping into the senior leadership of their church in May. And we've been working on that transition for, gee whiz, several years. I mean, probably four or five years altogether. You know, just seating it, meeting with leaders, clarifying vision, you know, sitting down with, with Pastor Steve and Joan and what's in your heart and where do we go? And, uh, you know, Brother Rod's obviously been involved. Mike Free has been really involved with it, uh, working with us on it. And so, you know, we were about two years away and then... Like last fall, when I was up there, Pastor Steve says, I'm ready to do it. I was like, whoa, man, you're ahead of schedule. You know, he still has a lot of ministry left in him. I mean, 
Pastor Steve's like a man of God. Joan, I mean, they, they, they have great ministry in them. I mean, when, when the Lord moved on my heart to go to Ukraine, the first person I thought of calling was Steve. Honestly, I just called him and said, I, I need you. He said, okay. And he came and was a warrior for the Lord, you know. He, he didn't realize how scary it was until we were in the Romanian airport. And he says, what do we do? I said, I don't know what happens next. <laughs> he thought I had a plan. I said, yeah, my plan was getting here, you know. <laughs> but anyway... <laughs> But anyway, and I, 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 I was stunned by it, honestly. I wasn't like I was trying to talk him out of it, but I wanted to say, you know, Steve, you, you sure about this? And it had, not, it had no reflection on Tony and Meg, because they are incredible, high-capacity people. And I won't go into the whole conversation with you, but basically, here's what Steve told me. At Tony's age, he's further ahead of where he was at his age. So it was time for him to push Tony to the front and him get behind and push Tony up the ramp. Those are my words. But that's what he told me. And I walked away from it. I thought, I think that's generational thinking. I think I just saw it. And I think if we would bear to maybe go there in our thinking and begin to think of handing off rather than handing down, there might be some great things that happen. I think, you know what I think would happen? I think we'd attract a lot of sons. That's what I think would happen. That's what I think would happen. That's what I think would happen. Hallelujah. So, I believe we have that generational vision in it. And uh, so 13 months later, after they laid hands on me, 13 months later, I had this incredible dream. Now, I don't have dreams all the time. I talk about a couple in the book. But I have had several dreams that have been extremely vivid and extremely critical to my spiritual development. So 13 months later, I wake up, I have this dream about these runners. I mean, color, full color, details. I could see their tennis shoes. I could see the look on their faces. I'm watching this. I wake up in the morning, right? Like, okay, you don't have to be a, a, a spiritual giant to figure out, like, something's going on here, right? And my, my iPad was on the nightstand, and I grabbed it, and I, and I punched in, I don't know what I punched in, running or something. I, I, I mean, I don't think I got out of bed for several, I mean, I literally sat there with that, and just, I was so caught up in what God had showed me. And I'm scrolling through stuff, and I'm scrolling through stuff, and then I get to the Olympic 440. You know, the long, and when I see it, that's what I saw in the dream. That's what I saw. And then I just started doing research. And you can't believe, listen, every major university in America must have a training video in running the 440. I mean, I went from university to university to, I probably looked at 30 of them that morning. It was just amazing to me. And what was getting my attention was the absolute detail on some of these points and then I'm thinking Paul said to run the race that's the race he was talking about that's the race they ran there so I thought I'm gonna learn about this race it was one of the races one the only race they ran there but that was one of the ones that, that they gloried in that that long race and I reached out to that and and the Lord was speaking in my heart a bunch of bunch of stuff so I I, I made a list of nine churches in NRP that I knew needed to make a, take a step of action with transition and uh, five of them said yeah we can get together you know the other things were going on you know what we're able and so uh, Larry and Angie Russo were so kind enough they, they Larry has a beautiful home he built himself gorgeous and uh, so I invited myself to bring these other people to their living room. It's a gift. It's a spiritual gift, inviting yourself. And we spent, we, we showed up the night before. We went to a restaurant in the morning. We, and then we spent all day together in our living room. All day. I mean, all day they served us dinner. And we, we did the whole thing. And I had these little workshops. And they had to have their wives with them. And uh, we did these little things, and they went off in the corner, and they talked. And uh, I, I, it was life-giving, you know? It was just things God was showing me. And so each one of those churches has begun to put a foot forward now. Now, here's what they all had in common. None of them know who their successor is at that point. But, you know, 
in church transition, you can't, you don't focus on the personality, you focus on the purpose and the plan. That actually, that will help you better discern who the personality is, by the way. Because if you have a personality, a gifted person, they may or may not be a fit. But if you have a purpose and a plan, that might help you discern it. Just no extra charge for that thought, okay? So we just begin to do that, and we've been following up on that, and that's been good. And by the way, I want to do that again. I want to do that again. This in my heart. I already talked to the apostolic team about it, and they said, go for it. So if, if you would like to do one of those get-togethers, talk to me, and we're, we'll make it happen. We'll figure out where our crowd is and do it, and you know, maybe we'll do two of them. Just small group. Like a small group, we'll spend at least a whole day, like a 10-hour day together, and we'll fellowship, and we'll walk through some of these things, and I'm always learning, I'm taking notes, and uh, I, I think there's some things the Lord has given me, not just information-wise, but impartation-wise, that would encourage you. And I still haven't even gotten my message here. Okay. But I am talking about runners, right? Okay, so somewhat in context here. So I'm not going to give you all the detail of that, but I do want to give you a couple key pieces that I learned, and then I'm going to move on, all right? So here's what I learned that really caught my attention. In that 440, there's what they call the acceleration zone and the exchange zone. For you football guys, it's about 65 feet. You know, a little more than what, it'd be like, a little more like three first downs, right? And in that zone, when that runner rounds the bend and that guy or that gal start kicking in, the goal that they teach every one of these videos without exception, here was the mandate. Listen to me. Both runners have to be at full speed. Both runners, not one lagging, dying, saying, I can't do it anymore, please help me. Come get the baton. Full speed, giving it everything they got. And that other guy going, just going for it 100%. Now, Angela found this picture for me. When she did, I said, that's exactly what I saw, Angela. Because I had looked through a bunch and I couldn't find anything. But I want you to see something. Look at the girl that's getting the baton. Right? The one with the blue bandana on her head. Where are her eyes facing? That every coach in every training video, without exception, said if you turn your head, you're disqualified. You will not be on this team. You must look forward. Notice where her arm is at. It's out here. So the first thing I learned is we've got to be up to speed. Church transition does not happen in a lull. There's got to be velocity. There's got to be energy. There's got to be vision. There's got to be people coaching you okay to do this it's not something that you should try to do on your own I, I, there's going to be people watching this the second thing is what they call the slap when they give that baton that baton is not handed off that is a complete misnomer they are whacked with that baton that person puts their hand out and that runner coming in with the baton is taught to whack them with that baton they are hit so hard in their hand like that that the instant response is to squeeze onto that thing there's no doubt that they have just been contacted by the mantle of that transition and they're given full authority to take that thing and to run with it they've been they've been hit they and all they got to do is squeeze and keep running and they teach the guy handing off, you know, I, I, uh, I, 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 I love baseball as a kid and as a young man. And my favorite part of baseball was running the bases, you know. Uh, I love stealing bases, hallelujah. But anyway, I get excited just saying stolen base. But what's the first thing, guys, they teach you in baseball about getting to the bases? You don't run to first base, you run through first base. You don't slow down. You run at full speed through the base. And that's what the, 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 this, they have a transition guy for that runner to slow. He doesn't slow down. He's going full speed. She's going full speed through that whole transition. Never letting off. Never stopping. Going forward. So full speed, slap grip, and all facing forward. Those are three points you could have some fun with. So let's go to the, the race here. What is the context of the race that Paul's talking about? Well, I learned from G. Campbell Morgan to read the chapter before. 
Or how about this? How about just a few verses before? And so all I do is read up a couple verses. What was the struggle? What was the race about that he was in? What was happening in his life? What were the circumstances that he was describing to these up-and-coming Christian leaders about a race they had to win? So let's look at that. Let's go back in 1 Corinthians 9, a few chapters, or a few verses. Okay? Put that up here for me, verse 13, please. Do you not know that those who perform sacred services eat at the food of the temple? And those who attend regularly to the altar have their share from the altar. What's that talking about? Provision. Say the word money. Money. It's not a dirty word. Say it again. You'll get free. Some of you are getting free right now. Money. We're in church. Money. Everybody that has a testimony has had their money tested, right? Say money. Okay. All right. So also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. But I have used, now listen to this, but I have used none of these things. And I am not writing these things so that it will be done so in my case it would be better for me to die than to have any man make my boast an empty one. He said I deserve to be remunerated, but you don't owe me. I'm not a hireling and you can't make me stop. You can try to starve me out. I'm still going to preach the gospel because I'm a called man. I don't have a price tag on me. Hallelujah. And that has to be the heart and the passion of a true servant leader. He doesn't say he's not worthy of it or even deserving of it he's just saying it's not going to control him okay i gave a lot of thought to this and and looked at this a lot you know financial remuneration especially for a man i'm not saying it's not it doesn't apply to women but especially for a man is a form of affirmation. It sure helps paying the bills, but it's a form of affirmation. You see some of these athletes are fighting, do I get 39.5 million or do I get 40.1 million? I'm thinking, at this point, what's a million or two? You know what I mean? And I think most of us, do most of us think like that? Really, I'm thinking, you greedy thing, you. But the more I thought about it, really what's happening is it's just an unsanctified deal of saying, you know what, if that guy's worth that much, I'm worth, I'm worth this much. There's something that God, listen to me, there is something that God has put in men to provide for their families, number one. That's why godly men will sacrifice for their families. That's why they'll go to work. By the way, that's why Jesus only called people that were working. Jesus went not only called them when they were working, he went to where they were working and watched them work. He said, I like how that guy catches fish. I like how that guy collects taxes. He did. I mean, the Bible says he did. I'm, I'm not making this up. That's right. But he went and watched him work. Because you know what, if you're in the ministry, you're going to do the work of the ministry. So if you want to mess up your church, just give people authority who don't know how to work. Just, just get random people who can't submit to their boss and they're going to come into your church and mess it up. Thank you, Pat. You're welcome. You're welcome. <laughs> working people. Okay? Working people. So I believe, the, and we can see this in Paul's writings in other places, I believe the battle was that, I mean, let's face it, this guy was not exactly appreciated by a lot of people. All the people he grew up with that, that patted him on the back when he was such a scholar and could talk about Hebrew history and the priest's garments and all this great knowledge he knew, now that he loved Jesus, he was anathema. He was done, he was gone. And then the people he's trying to serve, they're not so sure about him either. You know, there is something in ministry, there is something in the heart of man that not only wants to be affirmed, but needs to be affirmed if they're going to be healthy. That's part of body relationship. You need that. That's part of your life flow. So now the question is this, where are you going to get it? 
See, that's why a father spirit in the house will meet the soul need and translate into the spirit of many people because they're trying to get affirmation from so many other things. And now this new thing comes in that is supernatural. And Paul is saying here, listen, I, I'm laboring, I'm working, and you don't even appreciate what I'm doing. Nobody in the ministry has ever felt like that, though. Is that not, let's be honest, is that not one of the most vulnerable places of ministry? Don't look at me in that tone of voice. <laughs> Hello? I said, is that not one of the most... And, and you can have a thousand, you can be looking at a thousand people. But if you feel unaffirmed, you don't see it. Is this okay, Pat? Am I doing all right? So, you know, I've had the privilege of hanging out with Brother Rod for many years. And I've been in... I should just write a book about encounters with Brother Rod. <laughs> but again, nobody would believe these stories. I mean, we've been in jail together. We've wept together. We've served together. We've loved together. We've... And, and I've studied him. Because, I mean... There's not a whole lot of books like him out there. Let me just say this. <laughs> Amen? Amen? And he is intriguing, is he not? Is he not? I mean, you got to admit. I mean, like, man, you talk about a one-off model. I mean, you know? He's just intriguing to me. His gift mix is just, like, how does that work in that, you know? But here's what I begin to discern. I mean, I'm not the sharpest tool in the shed, but after a few repetitions, I begin to pick things up, you know? And after being around him and being around him and being around him, I started realizing, you know what the trigger gift in his life is? Affirmation. Think about it. When you hear Brother Rod's voice speak to you, is there not something... Listen, that's what an anointing is. And I'm just going to tell you one little story, because this, this, this is what really crystallizes for me. I, uh, Brother Rod called me and said, Keith, I need you to get on a call with me. This is probably five or six years ago, maybe six or seven years ago. And I said, okay, Brother Rod, he said, I have to handle a situation not related to NRP. You don't know the person. And uh, just so happened that day I had to fix a broken sore line. Just thought I'd share that with you, you know, just, this is what ministers do in their spare time, you know. And so I, I didn't have a John Deere, but I had a Daniel Tusi to dig up the hole, hallelujah. <laughs> True stories. So Daniel and I get out there, we're going to dig this thing up by hand, baby. And we're digging, but I got a, I got a call, you know, a conference call with Brother Rod, you know, to handle this situation. And it was a situation where a pastor had done something incredibly moronic. Uh, if anybody's listening, it's, I'm quoting somebody else. It's not, I, okay. not sinful, just not reasonable. And he had not listened to Brother Rod's counsel. And Brother Rod had asked me to follow up with the guy, and I did, and he said to me, did you give him the same counsel as I did? I said, absolutely, Brother Rod. I absolutely gave him the same counsel. And so we're on the phone with this, and then, I mean, I was digging in a sore. I wasn't like dressed in my Sunday best, if you know what I'm saying. I'll let your imagination run here, okay? But I'm having a Holy Ghost encounter, and it's like I was almost out of my body. I felt like I was looking down on the conversation as I hear the way Brother Rod is dealing with this guy, you know, that really, I mean, was a bad situation. Ended up doing tremendous damage in the church. And it was, it was on him. It was his fault, clearly. And even in the midst of Brother Rod bringing that correction, there was a Father's anointing of affirmation. And while it was happening, it was like different, like I call them watermarks. You know, like, like I notice around here, you go in, they'll say, you know, Katrina, the 29 foot, like, you know what I mean? They got the marks, you see them on the walls, right? Well, in my life, I got watermarks, you know? 
the rescue of 88, you know? I, I mean, you know, the, the, the arrest of 87, you know? Uh, you know, uh, you, you, just where you had encounters with God. And I realized what was happening, that God was putting a watermark on me. That I was able to discern and understand exactly what that generational thing looked like. And it was like I reached out into the spirit realm and grabbed a hold of something that, I, that I've been carrying and, and trying to mature. To, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm not going to even pretend to be like Brother Rod, so don't be too concerned, okay? I mean, that, that would be foolhardy for anybody, or you think? But listen to what I'm telling you. We have that spirit in this house. That's a weism. Can I have an amen? We carry that in our spiritual loins. And that is the calling card for the orphan spirit that is breaking the back of this culture and why they're doing so many bizarre things in the name of Jesus or not in the name of Jesus. That is part of our legacy. And so what I would say to you, when you're in ministry, do not look at the numbers, do not look at the dollars, do not look at anything. Look at a father's heart that you can draw down from and get your affirmation there rather than to trying to draw up from somebody and get your affirmation there. Because we all know those bottom line affirmations will come and go. Enjoy them while they're there. Appreciate them. But you know you can't build your life around that. But you can build your life around a covenant relationship. That even when they are challenging you, even correcting you, or maybe even rebuking you, there will be a spirit of affirmation that calls out to you and says, I still believe in you. I remember one time I was so broken over uh, you know, something I had done and just was so discouraged about myself. And, you know, and Brother Rod just spoke into my life. And that's what he said. He said, I still believe in you. I got a word for you tonight. God believes in you. God, the King of Heaven, the Father of all infirmity. People say, well, shouldn't I get that from God? Well, He's the head and we're the body. Shouldn't it flow through us? Don't get mystical on me. Get spiritual. Get biblical here. Okay? Let us learn to draw. I believe that was the race poles, and I believe that was the thing that was chasing him, that was biting at his heels, this affirmation that he's crying out, and he, and he shares with some other churches. There's something in us that doesn't just need that or want that. We have to have that affirmation. Where are you getting your affirmation from? The reason so many churches have gotten so many weird just chasing church growth techniques is that's where they're getting their affirmation from rather than the purpose of God. So we've got a whole generation that's cut their teeth and they think just getting bigger and slicker is the cure. And it's the heartbreak that comes with it. Now, let me just switch gears, because I want to get to the boxer. I loved boxing as a kid. In the inner city I grew up in, they, they trained you to box to get you off the street. What a stupid strategy. <laughs> you get a bunch of young men in the projects, and you teach them how to fight better. <laughs> Who in the world thought that is the dumbest thing I've ever heard of in my life? But we loved it. But we loved it, you know? I remember I was about 13 years old. We were in this boxing program. We'd meet on the top floor of the East Pittsburgh Police Station. They had a boxing ring up there, you know? And so, you know, they, they would teach us how to box. And, I, you know, I was kind of lanky. And uh, uh, so, I was, you know, I had a pretty good reach. So that, they liked that, you know? I got pretty big hands, pretty big feet. You fight from your feet, by the way. Do you know that? We had New Orleans crowd here. How many people remember Sam Mills that played for the Saints? Sam, how tall was he? Five nine? Five ten? He was a great college player and everybody passed him up. He became an all-pro in the NFL. I mean, he's, he was running around there like half the size of everybody else. But he had size 15 feet. And when he hit you, he hit you from his feet and drove. I mean, he was one of the hardest hitters in professional football and he was like five foot nine or five foot ten but somebody in the scouting department the Saints realized this guy's got some big feet we can use him 
So here's what they do in boxing, okay? So I remember I was all excited, and I was working my way through, through the guys in my class, and I was, rising, I was rising to the top, punching people in the face. You know, this is great fun. So I'm going to get to spar now against the coach. I've earned a spar against the coach. And I'm not intimidated because I'm so full of anger. I'm too, too stupid to be intimidated. You know, the, you know the, I thought before I got saved, I was courageous. Then I just found out I was reckless. There's a difference. And so they said, okay, so we get ready. He said, give me your arm. Gets my arm and tapes my right arm down. Wraps tape around my right arm. And I'm going to go into the ring with the coach. Well, why does he do that? Because I'm right-handed. So when you're right-handed, you know what you do? You swing with your right hand. And you never learn to use your left hand. Okay? And they teach you to punch like this instead of punch like this. You might get one in, but most times while you're doing this, somebody's going to clock you right in the face. Then the other thing they do is they figure out what your gait is. Like how wide is your stance? Where's that picture? Okay? They figure out what your stance is, and they'll put maybe a bungee cord, or they'll rope your ankles together, they'll get them at a certain distance, so you can't open up wider than you should. So that you're forced to launch off your feet, you're forced to punch off your feet from inside your body like this. Listen, I'll just tell you too, you know the greatest fantasies in action movies are not the pyrotechnics. They're this guy that is fighting for five minutes and getting punched in the face 20 times, and he's still alive. I'll tell you what, you get punched in the face one time by a man, you're most times going to be down. One good punch, I'm talking about without a boxing glove. Three, you're definitely done. And the exhaustion of a three-minute round of swinging your hands is something you cannot comprehend. I mean, it is unbelievable. I, I can't, I've played other sports, there's nothing that compares to the exhaustion and the, the, the physical condition you've got to be in there. You know, think about going a couple rounds is amazing. Now, I'm going to get to this. Stay with me here. So in Greek boxing, there were no weight classes. No weight classes. Everybody was put in a cup and they drew lots. Okay? There were no rounds. You fought until somebody either fell over or they gave a signal of submission, like I'm done. Okay? So that's the backdrop. So when he's telling them this story about running and boxing, they know what he's talking about. You're in for it. You got to win. This isn't going to go away. This is going to take more than you got. And then the Apostle Paul uses this illustration that's amazing. He said, I box as not one beating the air. And I think we know what that means, you know, swing and miss and everything, you know, like that. But, you know, because of that dream I had, I did a lot of research on these Olympic things and this verse, the, the boxing. And uh, so I'm going to just read you a couple things. Is that all right? It's going to have to be because I have the microphone. Okay. Sometimes boxers were to, talking about the Greek boxers were to aim their blows at their adversaries, which they did not intend to take place, and which the others were obligated to exert themselves to prevent as much as if they had been really intended. And by these means, some dexterous pugilist, that's a boxer, a pugilist, vanquished their adversaries by mere fatigue without giving them a single blow. Pugilists were said to beat the air when they had contended with a nimble adversary. Does anybody here have a nimble adversary? Just wondering. To beat the air when they, when they had a nimble adversary who by running from side to side, stooping with various contortions of the body, eluded the blows of his antagonist who spent his strength on the air. Frequently missing his aim and sometimes overturning himself and attempting to hit his adversary. When this by his agility had been able to elude the blow, we have an example of this. And then there's a writing by Virgil the poet where he has a poem. I'm not going to read the poem. I'm not going to do that, okay? So you're safe. 
So I thought, well, this is very interesting. This is exactly what the Apostle Paul is talking about. That you face an agile adversary and we're beating the air. You know what I think Pastor John was trying to teach us the other day? Don't beat the air. Don't waste your efforts that are not going to land a punch. Let the enemy, let the objective get close to you. Don't chase everything that comes through the door. Every ministry, every idea, every other person's idea. Don't chase that around. And we see people that are exhausted in ministry and really aren't ever hitting the target. Not because they don't have a good heart. They don't understand the match. They don't understand what they're, what they're up against. I got one more thing I want to read you. I think you're going to appreciate this. A little piece of history here. So I don't know if we have any Adam Clark fans in the house. I'm a big commentator, one of Wesley's guys. I love Clark, one of my favorites. Of course, when I read his commentaries, I have to have a dictionary because I don't have to worry. And then the guy just drops Hebrew words in the middle of the text and refers to historical things that I guess we're supposed to know and we don't know. And then I got to get, you know, so I go to study one verse and three hours later, I strike and understand it. So I'm doing a, I'm, I'm studying this and Clark mentions this thing. And so I dig it out. Now listen to this. When was the book of 1 Corinthians written? Does anybody know off the top of your head? 50 AD-ish. 50, 52, 57, 53, hike, I mean, somewhere in there, okay? So, listen to this piece of Greek history. Melchimenonus of Kara became a great favorite of ancient commentators for his infinite skill in not only avoiding punches, but also refusing to strike the opponent. The Olympic champion in A.D. 45 simply ducked, weaved, and blocked until his opponent fell down in exhaustion and no doubt exasperation. Now listen, I believe with all my heart that the Apostle Paul is writing the book of 1 Corinthians. This guy is an Olympic hero. He's still revered. That when he's talking about beating there, oh, we know, we've seen this, we know what you're talking about. And man, we're swinging wild. <laughs> we're swinging and everything coming at us. We're going to say, just come on, show your face. Right? You know, David waited till Goliath put himself in the line of fire. You know, one of the most strategic things about warfare, anybody will teach you, any book, on warfare will say this, you never let the enemy pick the battleground. That's rule number one. You never let the enemy pick the battleground. You pick the battleground. All right? I'm not only talking about demonic opposition, which is real, but I'm talking about circumstantial opposition, which is just as real too. That we do not want to be beating there. We just don't want to be using our energy, whipping at things that are not going to produce fruit. Chasing things around. Exhausting ourselves. The Apostle Paul said here very clearly, I don't swing and miss. <laughs> I do not swing I, and, and miss. I'm not beating the air. I'm not a, a fan just moving around here, moving air that is empty. I believe with all my heart that the Holy Spirit wants to challenge us. He wants to challenge you, me, to honor the grace of God that is in us and not spend it on things that are not worth pursuing. Whether they're ministry, things that aren't worth pursuing, that aren't our wheelhouse, that aren't our grace. You know, I've been discussing with some of our, our team a little bit lately, just like who are we? 
like NRP, like who are we? Like, I, mean, I know who we are and who you are. I mean, I, but like, like, what is our chemistry? You know. And and it occurred to me. You probably knew this a long time, but it just occurred to me. Wait a minute. There's a lot of apostolic networks and, and many good ones. Many more mature than us, been around longer than we do, and have planted more churches, uh, you know, probably done all kind of things. But almost all of them have a pretty similar model. And I thought, we don't fit that. It doesn't make us any better. It's just who we are. Most of the model is this. It's driven by a large church with a prominent teaching ministry. It's not a bad, if I had a large church and a prominent teaching ministry, I'd probably do something else with it too, okay? I'm not criticizing anybody, I want you to hear me. But that is not what has drawn us together. We came together by revelation and by a real understanding that the church, not ministry, was our purpose. And so the concentric focus on Jesus and his church is the glue that has drawn us together. And that's why we can get along so good and not even feel like we're compromising when we do church a little bit different than the next guy. Because it's not our church anyway, it's his church. Amen? And I think God wants me to understand that so that we can build on that and we can empower people with the vision that is in their heart so long as they stay in, in the confines of Scripture. Amen? And that we can affirm that. Can I just tell you something? Listen. As a pastor, when I pastored, the best ideas, I'm, I'm being truthful, I'm not being, I, I'm not making this up. The best ideas we ever had, the best things that ever happened in our church did not come from our leadership. And our leadership, you know, we did some pretty cool things. But the best things that ever happened was somebody in the church got an idea, heard from God, came and went through a, a, a godly process that we were able to embrace that thing. And I'll be honest with you, a lot of times on the front end, I was like not so sure. But here's what I was sure. Here's why I did it, because I believed in that person. They were faithful. They were teachable. They were submitted. They had character. And I thought, you know what? If I can't trust them, who do I trust? What am I doing here? And we would run with that thing and turn it loose, and it would look so great like we actually knew what we were doing. Hallelujah. Where did that come from? It wasn't somebody else's model. Are you with me? Glean the principles. Grab the understanding. And then say, God, mix this with my grace. Like, what have you called me to do? Hallelujah. What he's called us to do is build his church. Let's be real clear about that. So the what's already answered. Okay? Now you've got to figure out what, what your part on the wall is. And then after you figure out the what, then you can dance around the how and try to make that work. That's strategy. Amen? But I believe there's an affirmation anointing in us. I think that's the thing that draws us together. And why, why you know, we as a team, as a whole, our whole network, I mean, it's in our houses. It's there. It's tangible. It's obvious. Okay? And God wants us to run this race. And he wants us to knock the opponent out. Are you with me? He wants us to land deliberate, consistent resistance in the face of opposition because the Apostle Paul said, you got to run your race, you got to stay in the ring. And here's what he said, and I did it with aim. That word aim is the only time that Greek word is used in the entire New Testament. One time. It's not a real complicated word. It, you know what it means? Listen, clarity. Have you heard that word this week? It means clarity. I'm clear about what I'm doing. 
Don't get distracted about what you don't know and you don't know what to do. Be clear on the one thing you know to do or the two things or the three things or whatever they are and punch that thing in the face. Hit it with all you got. And even though you might feel restricted, you might feel taped down, you might feel bound up, stay in the ring. Amen? Stand up with me. For more information on our annual conferences, including our leadership conference, women's conference, men's conference, youth leader intensive, and youth camps and conferences, visit nrpastors.com. To check out all of our podcasts, including the Leadership and Context podcast by Keith Tusi, the Flourish Women's podcast by Penny Tusi, and the podcast for all of our conferences, click on the podcast tab on our website. We can't wait to see you at one of our conferences soon.